Okay, welcome to Ask an Austrian, episode number seven. I am Mark Thornton, and I am a senior fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute in Auburn, Alabama. Um, welcome, everybody. Uh, thank you for sending in uh, some really excellent questions. I hope to get to as many of them as, as possible here and uh, at least try to give some answer uh, to what otherwise are some pretty um, difficult, fundamental uh, type questions. And so um, please enjoy. Uh, again, I'm Mark Thornton and um, I work for the Mises Institute. And of course, I encourage everybody uh, to become involved as deeply and uh, as possible with the Institute and its programs. Uh, we have programs for and books for everybody uh, of all ages and uh, interests. And, uh, and so the real key, uh, as Austrians see it in general, and many others see it in general, that changing society is changing the ideology of the people. And once you change the ideology, the state is more or less helpless. Um, it doesn't have the moral authority, uh, the intellectual authority, which is, of course, when you take uh, belief and you take science and you meld them together, is, that's what you get is an ideology of the people, something that most people, um, you, you know, they, they follow their ideology uh, intimately, and that's what makes the state and all the problems that it forces upon us uh, allows them to be melted away. So, um, you know, I think this is a great idea. This is a great program. Um, I've put some of my books up that are available uh, from the Institute to be downloaded for free um, on the notes page. So I encourage you uh, uh, to stay, stick with this program and, and, to, uh, and to get out there and read some of those books uh, that the Institute provides. Um, so here are the questions. Uh, Tyler asks about um, a talk that Bob Murphy gave a few years ago on the fundamentals of bond rolling over by the Federal Reserve. Um, and does that apply to foreign bonds as well? Does the Fed monetize new bonds to pay off foreign bondholders? Well, let me sort of reorganize that question uh, because it is very pertinent in that, um, you know, the Fed, in order to expand the money supply, it buys government bonds. Now, initially, uh, when I was a kid, they would only buy very short-term government-backed uh, debt. Now, of course, they've gone into long-term 30-year bonds um, and mortgage-backed securities and a lot of other things uh, that we find ourselves in a huge monetary mess. And as part of that monetary mess in buying those mortgage-backed securities, uh, the Fed acquired a huge number of these uh, financial instruments, as well as these long-term government bonds. So we had what's called quantitative uh, easing. 
where they were buying up all of this debt. And now we're into a phase where the Fed is supposedly embarked on quantitative tightening, where they're selling these government bonds back into the marketplace. Um, they haven't really done that much, and I don't expect they're going to somehow dismantle all of that. Uh, but the equilibrium in the middle of uh, quantitative easing on the one hand, or QE, uh, in the past, and quantitative tightening, which is selling off of those bonds and not rolling them over, in the middle is basically the Fed is not adding to or subtracting from its holdings, from its balance sheet. And at, at that equilibrium point, the Fed, every time one of the bonds that it holds matures, they simply uh, take the money and reinvest it uh, back into, the, uh, into their portfolio, uh, buying a similar type of uh, government bond. So uh, there's the quantitative easing where they're acquiring all sorts of new bonds. There's the quantitative tightening where they're reducing their balance sheet. And in the middle, uh, they're just simply rolling over uh, as bonds become mature. They take the money and reinvest it in the economy. Now, at some point, would the Fed just own all bonds? Uh, believe me, we wouldn't want to get to that point uh, without having to market, but the Fed has pretty much taken over a huge swath of our mortgage market, so I don't want to say that could never happen, but it would be an extreme monetary policy, have huge inflation ramifications, and we really don't want to go there. So great question, kind of sums up a lot of what the Fed's been doing over the last several years and what it's currently doing um, in terms of not rolling over government bonds that have matured. Uh, Ryan asks um, about the similarities between an anarcho-capitalist society and a common law society such as colonial America um, and early England. And uh, I think there's a lot of validity in that. Uh, in colonial America, uh, for example, certainly the federal government was not really a part of day-to-day uh, -day life for the majority of Americans. Uh, the closest thing that a colonial American would see in terms of government was um, you know, maybe a public official, maybe a, a public event, a hanging uh, or a, an auction, something like that, or a land sale. Uh, but it was very, very limited uh, in terms of government in colonial American society. Uh, the same is true for England. Uh, if you go back in England a thousand years, even the court system was a private-based uh, legal system. So there are certainly examples of anarcho-capitalism uh, in existence, historically speaking. And, and more importantly, 
it points to how vibrant and productive and honest those societies were. I mean, certainly colonial America in a very short period of time went from largely a wilderness uh, to a world economic power in a matter of just a couple of hundred years. So that's very impressive. And then of course, in early England, um, did something likewise where they were really backwater Europe um, uh, from early times. And, uh, but then, uh, you know, in early uh, England, um, it became uh, a hotbed of the Industrial Revolution. So those people who scoff at the idea, the feasibility of an anarcho-capitalist society really don't know uh, history very well. And the reason, of course, they don't know history is that it's either ancient history, it's unrecorded history, as in places like early Ireland and Iceland, um, and it's history that is not promoted by the state or statist historians, which I may be repeating myself there, but um, so it's our job to take advantage of these examples um, and show just how vibrant uh, those early societies were with almost uh, no government whatsoever. So uh, John asks, what's the libertarian view on the fentanyl crisis? Well, this is something that's right up my alley. I've been writing about this since I was in graduate school, not fentanyl per se, but <clears throat> the economic theory, which explains why fentanyl uh, came to the forefront and how it's become uh, a crisis with literally uh, thousands of people dying uh, every year and, uh, you know, many, many more thousands being uh, harmed uh, significantly as a result of fentanyl in the type of drug war crisis uh, that we're experiencing. And basically what I explained um, almost, well, I don't even want to say how long ago it was, but in my dissertation, and in my book on the economics of prohibition, which is one of the books that you can download for free um, on the notes page, I show uh, in a chapter on the potency of illegal drugs that by making drugs, and really this applies to a number of different types of goods, um, when the government makes a drug like alcohol or cannabis, illegal, what they do is they change the incentives in the black market to provide, to produce and sell and distribute the most potent product possible, uh, much higher potency than the market would produce, and also produce a very low quality product in terms of its manufacturer, in terms of impurities, in terms of all the things that we like in products. Uh, even people who don't like McDonald's will stop there occasionally because they know what they're getting 
that dependability factor is very important, and that's not what you get in the black market. Um, and so what I showed in the book was that the potency of cannabis from the uh, early 70s to the mid 80s increased by a thousand percent. Um, and with alcohol prohibition, uh, we had a marketplace beforehand where uh, whiskey was about 40% of the market, beer was about 40% of the market. Um, and then during alcohol prohibition, the market was captured, about 90% of it was um, whiskey-like products, and most of them were uh, more, much more potent than whiskey you would buy in the store today. And so as we've gone through time with this war on drugs, and they spend more money on enforcement, they have higher penalties, longer prison sentences, and so on, the suppliers have migrated from cannabis or marijuana um, to uh, things like cocaine and then crack cocaine and then the reemergence of heroin, um, methamphetamines, uh, always trying to stay one step ahead of the law and uh, by coming up with new ways of creating very potent, very condensed versions of drugs. And of course, fentanyl is a heroin-like substance, and except it can be a hundred times more potent. Uh, we don't know beforehand because it's a black market producer. It's not like a pharmaceutical company. Uh, there's no legal recourse uh, to the deaths and damage that it causes like it would with a product by uh, Pfizer. Well, maybe that's a bad example these days. Um, but yeah, the fentanyl crisis is the result of the war on drugs and, uh, and, and the black market pushing the marketplace towards more potent, more dangerous drugs. Um, Charlotte asked how the bond market is impacted by inflation. Well, uh, when the money is coming into the market, if it's going into the financial markets, which it does with the Federal Reserve, then initially uh, bond prices will rise and as interest rates fall. So the injection effect is, and, and Austrians consider inflation an increase in the money supply that has eventually the effect of increasing prices or price inflation. So initially, and we see this all the time, the Fed lowers interest rates and it has to inject money into the economy to buy up the bonds to reduce interest rates uh, in the economy. But once price inflation takes over, of course, interest rates in the marketplace have to rise and bond prices have to fall. Credit becomes more difficult and asset prices uh, fall. So stock prices fall, land prices fall, real estate prices fall. Um, and then of course, stocks represent capital assets. So they're gonna fall uh, as well. 
So it's a cyclical effect. It's not a static effect. And uh, so you have monetary inflation on the one hand and price inflation on the other doing uh, opposite, having the opposite impact on markets. Samuel asked me to summarize the skyscraper curse, and this is a, a good follow-up question to Charlotte's question, because the skyscraper curse, which is the coincidence between the building of the world's record-setting skyscraper and an ensuing economic crisis. And uh, I've also provided the link for you to download for free uh, this book, which is really two short books together. One is on the economics of the skyscraper curse, which essentially is uh, a layover of the Austrian business cycle theory. In the second half of the book, I think you'll also find very useful um, in the world, and that is it looks at how Austrians have looked at the major business cycles over the last 100 years, including, of course, the Great Depression, what they said about those situations beforehand, and what mainstream economists said about those situations before the crisis struck. And, and so in the book, I make the argument that both the Austrian business cycle theory and the skyscraper curse all revolve around interest rates. And when the Fed increases the money supply and reduces interest rates, um, it sets off a boom in the economy and it sets off people building new skyscrapers and eventually a new record skyscraper. Um, so the, the business cycle theory is all wrapped up uh, in the skyscraper curse. And I encourage you uh, to download that book and to, and to read it. Um, it's intentionally meant um, to talk to, not to economists, uh, but to inform citizens, um, business people, entrepreneurs, and that sort of thing, uh, you'll be able to see the real-world economics at work um, in the business cycle as a result. So it won't be an academic treatise, but it will be something that is very relatable and useful. You know, people buy land, people build buildings, People work in buildings, and that's what the book is all about. So you'll have a much better understanding of the world around you um, as a result of that book, I hope. Okay, Mohammed uh, asked me about critiques of Austrian economics, and I don't want to get into this question because it really is in the weeds, so to speak. Um, very interesting things. But I think I'd like to um, uh, skip over the particulars of that question, but address the question in general. And that is, <clears throat> Austrians uh, don't have any kind of weird concocted view of economics or the economy. Uh, we take a very uh, reasoned, reasonable, realistic 
view of economics in the real world economy. And so our theories about the economy don't really stray very far from economic principles um, like supply and demand. And so a lot of the critiques about re-switching and circularity and paradoxes, these are all concoctions of other schools of economic thought. And it gives you, they do give you some idea of how twisted their thinking is, uh, but it takes us really far afield from basic supply and demand, um, entrepreneurial expectations and all of that. Um, the profit motive, you know, we don't really stray too far from real world action. Uh, Zach asks, how do I explain the subjective value theory to conservative voters uh, who tend to believe in objective truth and objective morality? Well, I believe in objective truth and objective morality. Uh, we all should know how hard it is uh, to sort of zoom in on those two things. Uh, but they are certainly possible. They certainly are believable. They um, are certainly important enough to believe in. So I would agree with the average conservative American um, about those points, but the subjective value theory is doesn't really necessarily stray from that. I mean, uh, the subjective value theory is just basically that people determine the value of a particular good at a particular time in a particular setting and uh, irrespective of the price. So we may know that a cup of coffee is a certain price or that the, a pound of coffee <coughs> beans is a certain price. Um, but the subjective value is simply how much I like coffee, when do I drink coffee, how much am I willing to pay for coffee. You know, yes, I'm addicted to coffee. Uh, I'm going to drink it every morning or go crazy. Um, uh, but I'm not so crazy um, as to spend $7 on a cup of coffee at Starbucks. Okay, that's just me. Obviously, there are millions of people every day who go to Starbucks around the world and buy very expensive coffees and, uh, and take advantage of their of that environment uh, and their services. And that doesn't have any negative effects on me whatsoever. Um, but I like uh, black coffee. I like it in the morning and I don't want to pay too much money for it. Uh, so that's just subjective is just my personal evaluations of a product versus my, the money that I have uh, in consideration of all other products, their prices and, you know, the money I have to spend, um, you know, and for most things, 
you know, you can take a lot of things for granted. Like when I buy my coffee, I have a certain idea of how much my coffee filters are going to cost and how much my, the things I put in my coffee are going to cost, um, you know, and all of that. But the subjective value is just simply how much do I value it? Uh, that's subject to change over time and place. So it is a wild card, uh, but it's just what makes people different. Uh, and it doesn't say anything really about truth, doesn't say anything about morality in general. Now, there are certain things that conservatives might object to, um, uh, such as, uh, you know, Zach wanting to uh, have, a, have a beer after work, or, you know, or somebody else, Jeff might want to smoke uh, some cannabis after work. You know, there are things we can disagree on, but it doesn't really, it isn't really a market phenomenon. That's just um, a, a morality judgment. And it doesn't really apply to most things. Michael asked, why is gold and silver not taking off despite record inflation? Well, Michael, that's a very good question. Um, I often wonder that myself. Um, probably no more than seven or eight times a day um, because we have had enormous monetary inflation, not just here in the US, but in Europe, Japan, other central banks have all been buying enormous amounts of government bonds and increasing their money supplies. And gold and silver <clears throat> have been relatively um, stagnant over the last um, year or so. And uh, gold and silver are hard to um, get a handle on because they move independently. Uh, they are like money and they are something that can be either risk averse or risk taking. In other words, sometimes the risks in the world uh, make people want to invest more in gold, uh, in other cases, less. Um, and as it's also a commodity. They're both industrial commodities, they're both consumable commodities, and uh, so there are a lot of factors. I think, personally, that as we look back on this, um, over the next several months, certainly the next several years, that gold will make another jump higher. The last jump occurred uh, a while back, and it was really the first commodity to react to money coming out of the financial institutions and into the real economy that touched off this latest uh, commodity and price inflation. It wasn't Russia's in invasion of the Ukraine. That's what everybody will tell you. That wasn't it. Um, but gold and silver were the first to take off. Uh, now, other commodities have experienced booms, 
there's been a relative low in all commodity markets. And I expect gold and silver to take off again uh, to yet another higher level, to really historic levels. So I think there's good things in store for <clears throat> gold and silver, but it's very diff difficult to figure out. It's almost impossible uh, for you to time those kind of investments the way you might time your investments in uh, Starbucks, uh, Amazon, Apple, ExxonMobil, et cetera. Uh, the next question is about to what degree should we libertarians hold figures like Jefferson, who did a lot in pursuit of liberty, but compromised on several instances along the way. How much of his moderation can we chalk up to cronyism as opposed to Jefferson being forced to moderate in order to get anything done? Um, well, Jefferson was a complex individual. I think he was a highly dedicated uh, individual in pursuit of liberty. I don't think there's really anything to be ashamed of, although there are things uh, that need explanation. He was a slave owner, for example, um, but he didn't own his slaves. He inherited slaves from his family and from his wife's family, and he was deeply in debt. Uh, the slaves were held as collateral against that debt. There was no way he could just give away his slaves uh, en masse um, legally and get away with it. I mean, he was, uh, throughout his life, he didn't uh, have a lot of money in the sense of uh, he had a lot of debt at the same time. And plus there were laws in all the Southern states, at least, that prevented people from freeing their slaves. So that it wasn't really legal for people to actually uh, free black slaves into the state in which they resided. Um, and the same is true for uh, the Louisiana Purchase and, and other things that he did. Um, political necessity and political expediency were certainly a big part of it. For example, with the Louisiana Purchase, I don't know the ins and outs of that, but if I was president, I wouldn't want, for example, the French or the English especially uh, taking over that ter territory um, and having them threaten yet another uh, takeover of America. So who knows what exactly went into that, but I think that's something that you and historians can pursue. Uh, Matt uh, asked about Rothbard's book on the Progressive Era and the liturgical pious split and how it informed policy and voting in the late 19th and 20th centuries uh, and why it isn't integrated into regular history? Um, very good question. Um, Rothbard picks up on this religious issue uh, from political historians who wrote extensively on this topic. 
they provided sort of the micro level data about who was voting and what they thought, what was their ideology. And the pietists were uh, basically the hotbed of statism. Uh, they weren't really um, controlled directly by churches and uh, they were more uh, an individualist religion and they migrated towards statism, uh, government control, um, and they wanted to clean up society. Um, however, best possible. And of course they resorted to the state. This became the progressive movement. And um, the liturgicals were more normal and average, regular church going people, Catholics, Lutherans, and that sort of thing, which were people who where the church didn't dictate um, viewpoints, but they were the leaders of the liturgicals um, viewpoints on religion and this fed over into politics and so the liturgicals tended to be more libertarian um, and uh, much more aligned with the democratic party whereas the pietists um, were more like the original colonists um, they were breakaway in terms of their religion, uh, not a heavily dominated church directed religion, and uh, they were more aligned with the new Republican Party of uh, the old Whig Party um, of Henry Clay and Abraham Lincoln, a much more interventionist policy. Uh, and they brought together uh, minority political views like prohibition, uh, which was very popular, anti-slavery, um, and all the like. And so this is an important underlying feature of American ideology. It's a split uh, based on religion and also based on when uh, Americans first migrated to this country. The original colonists tend to be more uh, Puritan, Puritanical, Pietist, um, with little in the way of church structure. Um, they were just there to clean up their act, clean up society, um, where the liturgicals were later latecomers, Lutherans, Catholics, and so forth, um, with a more dominant church uh, and a more freedom-oriented uh, point of view. So very important and very much um, un, not really well integrated into American history. Sam asked, what's the libertarian view on tariffs? Well, we're against them. Um, import and export tariffs, quotas, all the, you know, everything regarding <clears throat> uh, restrictions on trade. Uh, there are libertarians who believe um, that there should be a, a fixed tariff rates on imports and exports in order to pay for, you know, the Navy and the Coast Guard and the lighthouses and so forth. Um, but that would be 
uh, an insignificant feature of American life, libertarians oppose all restrictions on trade, including tariffs. Zach asks, what is money and do I consider cryptocurrencies money? And what will it take them to make it money? <coughs> Excuse me. Money is the medium of exchange. I just had a caller, random caller this morning and the whole, their whole question hinged on, was related to this question and hinged on, you know, is cryptocurrency a medium of exchange? Do people actually make exchanges with it? Uh, that's certainly possible. People donate money to us, crypto money to us uh, at the Mises Institute. Um, but generally, it's not a generally accepted medium of exchange. Only certain businesses accept it, and it is transferred in between individuals, but it's not a generally accepted medium of exchange. So if I went up to Tumor's Corners uh, here in Auburn and wanted to buy um, a fresh-made lemonade, they wouldn't take Bitcoin, for example. So uh, it has a ways to go. I think it's certainly possible. In fact, I think it's almost likely that eventually somewhere in the future we're going to have uh, crypto money of some sort or another. Even the government and the central banks are working to establish their own alternatives in this space. Um, so an interesting market to uh, keep an eye on for sure. Uh, Carter asks about neocameralism, which, um, uh, yeah, uh, and is it compatible with anarcho-capitalism and voluntarism? Um, I don't really think so as a general case. Uh, neocameralism is when <clears throat> The leader of society um, controls all property and basically uh, can do anything they want. And that's certainly conceivable. I mean, I could own a huge swath of land and declare myself, you know, Prince of Opelika and uh, start establishing, um, you know, tariffs, for example. Uh, my own minimum wage, and in theory, um, it would have at least an element somewhere in it of being voluntary and not breaking with property rights. But um, as a general case, um, I don't think that really works in a society where uh, Many, many people own property outside of their bodies and their personal possessions, but actually own landed property um, and, uh, and have a say-so. So I, I think it's, it's one of those answers where, in theory, it's possible, but in reality, it, um, it doesn't hold up well to what we know about societies currently, or if we go back to some of those early uh, anarcho-capitalist societies that we've 
began our discussion here today. Um, Art asks about uh, GDP calculations um, and uh, and basically he's trying to take us back to a very stripped down version of the quantity theory and inflation. Um, and you know we can do that. Rothbard came up with, for example, his private product remaining statistic as an alternative to GDP. We have an alternative Austrian monetary monetary supply uh, created by Rothbard and Salerno and others. Um, and that would get our focus more on exactly how Fed monetary inflation leads to uh, higher prices in the economy. Um, and the Fed is, does everything it can um, to distort all those, all that, that, that entire statistical um, situation. The government loves statistics. They create statistics, but they always want the statistics to be misleading. I helped out with a little project by uh, Phil Graham, Bob Eaglin, John Early, uh, that just came out about how the government distorts income distribution statistics and uh, the length that those guys went to to deconstruct and reconstruct what actually is involved with all of the taxes, all of the transfer payments, and what the actual distribution of income in American society is, uh, that's one thing that I would very much encourage you to read. And that really leads into the next question. Uh, Zach asked, what non-Austrian economists should we be reading? And what um, non-economists should we be reading? Well, certainly that new book by Phil Graham, Bob Eaglin, and John Early, uh, it's just out a few weeks um, on income distribution is very, very important politically and will continue to be so because all of the statistics that are talked about in the media are totally misleading uh, because the underlying statistics are all bad. So, and those guys, those are three old school, you know, economists um, and old school economists are, are still worthwhile reading. Uh, you know, as long as they're not cuckoo Keynesians um, uh, or terribly left-wing economists like Thomas Piketty, P Piketty um, you know, if you go back to the old school guys, um, People that Rothbard references, for example, would be good. Um, uh, Thomas DiLorenzo's new book. I would encourage you all to get that, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Economics. Um, you know, he cites Mises, he cites Hayek, he cites a, a lot of the Austrians, but he also cites a lot of old school economists you'll never hear of, but they've done great work uh, on all sorts of things like the minimum wage, uh, competition, uh, you know, they, they 
in, in a lot of cases, they've gone back and asked questions. Well, you know, mainstream economics says the market can't build and maintain lighthouses, and therefore all the ships are going to crash and sink. Well, you know, somebody went out and actually did look at those situations and found out that was just a made-up fallacy by somebody who didn't know a thing about lighthouses or the business of lighthouses. So there are plenty of good non-Austrian economists. You've probably all heard of Walter Williams. He's written a, a several really good books. Thomas Sowell, um, another great economist, not Austrian. There are some differences uh, in our approaches, but man, he's really pretty good. And uh, on a variety of different things and good in general, trustworthy um, in general. Um, so there are plenty uh, of those people. They haven't been, I don't think, you're not gonna find a lot of them um, in Ivy League schools that have been trained in the last 25 years. But uh, yeah, there's plenty of uh, good non-Austrians out there. Just look who the Austrians are reading. Read Rothbard. Um, read Salerno. Uh, you know, the, read DiLorenzo. Uh, these guys are reading and writing all the time, and uh, they're uncovering gems uh, worthy of your attention. Uh, Non-economists, um, I'm a big believer in, in reading the great art um, authors of all time. Uh, Shakespeare's held up uh, for over 500 years, so that's probably worth knowing, worth reading. Um, uh, scientists, um, both old and new, um, are also worth reading. So Galileo um, on up to the present, um, people who are searching the universe for, for answers. I mean, those are always great reads, important reads. And, you know, if you know money and banking and the money supply, you're going to impress people that you meet. If you know science well enough, you're going to impress people that you meet. If you know the history of great entrepreneurs in America, that's going to impress people. It's going to be uh, help you um, in a variety of different ways, including writing. So um, there are plenty of great things to read. Uh, we sell a lot of them uh, here, here at the Institute, um, but there's so much more out there. There's the great histories of people by people who we don't necessarily agree. So, you know, there's been great histories of the Roman Empire, great histories uh, of England, um, Churchill's history, um, you know. So there are, you know, things that are worthy, uh, things that are impressive, um, you know, so it's beyond just getting answers correct on Jeopardy. Um, you're going to do something very fundamentally good for yourself, uh, and it's going to impress people around you. So, yeah, there's plenty of that out there. Um, Ali asks about national security to maintain, uh, you know, 
America and um, and I, I don't think I really have any worries there. Um, we spend way too much on national defense. We're way too involved in the international order and it's deflected our attention away from our own order within this country, um, which we almost have intentionally let go of. We were intentionally allowing our own order to depreciate um, and even disintegrate. Um, and so I'm not really worried about that. I mean, I'm not worried about, um, you know, say Alabama seceded from the union. I wouldn't be worried about any foreign country coming in um, to this, into my state and trying to take it over. Even the Union Army uh, didn't try to invade Alabama until all the fighting age people had left the state. So, and I'm certainly not worried about any invasion today. Even just thinking about, you know, if Alabama was totally independent, I think we could take on um, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of our neighboring countries. I'm not worried about Mexico invading us, for example, or Canada. Um, you know, that's just not much of a worry. If people defend themselves, um, people have the ability to defend themselves, which is why the Second Amendment is so um, important. Um, I don't think we have to worry about um, those type of issues. Um, let's see. Okay. Am I bullish about the economy? Not really. Um, in the short in the short term, I'm usually bearish, um, depending upon where we are in the skyscraper curse. Um, but I'm particularly bearish right now because of what central banks have done to the world economy uh, and what our crazy leaders, both domestic and foreign, are the lengths that they're willing to go um, to undermine their own societies, to harm their own societies. So um, in general, I'm not optimistic about the American stock market or the American economy. I think right now, of course, uh, despite, you know, we have record inflation and, uh, but there are jobs available and companies are open and doing business. But if, as I look out over the short and medium term, I'm not optimistic at all. As a matter of fact, I'm so pessimistic about the American economy that it almost lends itself to being optimistic about getting some real reforms. You know, could you ever see us going back to the gold standard? Well, I had a hard time with that, but I, I can see now that we're closer to that type of thinking and ideology now than we ever have been since 1971. Zach asks about the legacy of Milton Friedman. Well, Milton Friedman was most people's introduction to free market economics. Um, I've written, I've interviewed Milton Friedman. Um, 
I've corresponded with him. Uh, I wrote an article about his contributions to the drug war debate. Uh, so he has many positive things to say uh, about his libertarian policy views. He's always seems to be working in the right direction. His academic work, however, is very suspect. And so what he won the Nobel Prize for, and, you know, other than making us recognize uh, the common man, recognize that the Fed is the engine of inflation, his economics are rather suspect. And, um, uh, but in general, I think I give him a, a passing grade, certainly. He was somebody who was very important uh, to my uh, libertarianism, becoming an economics major, uh, eventually finding Austrian economics, which I didn't know existed. Um, but um, so he was uh, one of the lone voices who really, his voice spread far and wide uh, compared to others. Um, there's a question by Matt about Rothbard in the Soviet Union. And uh, his question sort of looks at, well, didn't Rothbard um, not take account of what was actually going on in the Cold War, but I disagree very, very much with that idea. I think Rothbard was one of the very few people who understood that the Soviet Union was a paper tiger. And so his early political activities, he scoffed at the idea that we had to pay any attention um, to the Soviet Union or that we had to, you know, fight the Cold War. Um, you know, and I understood the economics of communism, even though I was taught that communism was going to take over the world. Um, I understood that they had bad economics behind them, but I was still afraid of them until I was told that, you know, most of the non-Russian troops of the Soviet Union were not given uh, frontline uh, weapons or ammunition. Um, and that really made me realize how weak uh, and unimportant the Soviet Union was and, you know, really how weak and unimportant um, Russia is today. I mean, it's more than just um, a gas station, as some people have said. They do have nuclear weapons, um, and they do have an autocrat in charge who may or may not have all his marbles with him. Um, but it's not something that we need to endanger ourselves about. And it's not something in Rothbard's case, he was arguing against changing every little thing in society to fight the Soviet Union. Um, and that we had to give up our liberty in order to be able to defend ourselves. And he was a rather lone voice in the Libertarian Party uh, with respect to that. And there's a new book out on the history of the Libertarian Party. And um, 
some of the reminiscences of his opponents were like, well, Rothbard was just crazy. Of you know, he was you know almost aligning himself with the Soviet Union, um, treating it as 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 a, a friend rather than a foe. Um, but Rothbard saw through the weakness of the Soviet Union, and he realized that we shouldn't give an inch of our liberty in order to somehow oppose uh, the Soviet Union. So I think Rothbard was very well informed about the <clears throat> ultimate impact of uh, and strength of the Soviet Union. And uh, so I'm not worried about that. And I'm not worried, you know, even today, I think that we can take that um, principle forward. You know, the U.S. is by far and away the world's uh, biggest uh, military superpower power, um, and we don't need to uh, reduce our freedom, reduce our liberties, constrain our economy, intervene in our economy to somehow protect us from uh, Russia or communist China, uh, both of which are relatively weak political regimes. And, uh, and, and so I think that's a important guiding force. I think that uh, people in the caucus need to know about the inherent weakness of socialism and communism and don't take the face value that the media paints about, you know, supersonic weapons in Russia and, you know, uh, 750 divisions of Chinese troops and, and all of that headline stuff uh, because those political regimes are inherently weak and that weakness is based on trying to impose force um, on their economy and uh, the people certainly not liking it. Uh, China has lots of internal enemies uh, in every location uh, of every sort um, from their east coast to their west coast to uh, people who have left the country, um, people who have been oppressed by that country and all of its neighbors. None of its neighbors really trust uh, China. The Koreans, even the North Koreans don't trust China. Uh, certainly not the Soviet Union, certainly not the former Soviet states, certainly not uh, Vietnam um, uh, or Japan uh, or Taiwan. They all uh, realize what's going on and uh, but they also realize the inherent internal weaknesses that, the, that those so-called superpowers have. And, you know, let's face it, some of that weaknesses um, that really didn't exist uh, internally in the U.S. Um, until certainly until the 20th century, but much more so now, there's a lot more internal dissent and ideological erosion in Cold War America supremacy. So uh, it's difficult, it's hazardous, there's not a lot of information 
that's available. But I think that in general, I think we can say that communist socialist regimes have an inherent political weakness to their power. And they're much more concerned about maintaining their power internally. Russia, China, and any other, Venezuela, um, North Korea, um, and that what they do externally is all pretty much done for internal purposes. Um, and with that, I'm, I'm losing my voice and I'm pretty much out of questions. So I'd be happy to do this at some point in the future. I think it's a very worthwhile um, project and I thank you for uh, listening to me today. And, uh, and I hope you'll become ever more uh, vigilant in uh, your knowledge about the Mises Institute and about Austrian economics. And you know, if you wanna look at uh, some of the great creator heroes, intellectuals and political voices, uh, there's no better place really to start than with the Austrian school. And you know, people like Ludwig von Mises, uh, Guido Holzman has done a great biography, and that's something you should all at least purchase uh, and get ready to read. It's a, it's huge. Um, and then, of course, Rothbard, who, uh, who did politics um, as a hobby, more or less, uh, in addition to all of his academic writings and teachings and so forth. Um, so you're at, you're at the right place. Um, and I just would encourage you to keep on making the effort uh, because it's very, very important and it's worthwhile. And it's really the only way to go to success. So thank you.